I want to say it's great to see you this morning, and I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. Let's pray. Our Father, as uh, Pastor Carr read from the 19th Psalm earlier in our service, Lord, I come back to that verse. I pray for us so often as we get ready for the sermon. Uh, Lord, um, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my and our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, the title of the sermon this day, today, is The Christian's Destiny. But uh, I might well have titled it Your Destiny, Christian. I want us to think about our destiny. I want each of you individually to think about your own destiny. You know, Christians uh, can be confused and uncertain about the destiny of lost loved ones in Christ, as we saw last week, but they can also be uh, uncertain and confused over, over their own destiny. And I'm talking about you, uh, me. I'm talking about people who are sitting here, uh, those of us in the room who uh, trust Christ and love, and love Christ. We can read about the glorious destiny of the church and how the church is the bride of, of Christ, but really, for any number of reasons, kind of struggle to actually see ourselves in that, in that picture. We can wonder if it, it'll be so. We can be afraid to connect that prophecy to us, to us, to ourselves, as an individual, as a person. You know, we know that when the Lord comes, when Jesus comes, it will be the day of the Lord. And you find that phrase, the day of the Lord, many times in the Bible. And there are hundreds of verses that tell us that the day of the Lord will be a day of reckoning. It will be a day of judgment. Um, Jesus wrote about it with warnings like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Paul wrote about it like this. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Peter wrote about it like this. Judgment begins with the household of God. So we can read these kinds of statements. We can look and review, you know, sort of the course of our, our own life. And we can wonder, how could I be sure I'm going to make it past that? We can feel very uncertain and be anxious. And even if we don't confess it, because it might not be proper to confess it in strong, mature, Christian, holy circles, doesn't mean we don't feel it. And if we're feeling it, it is affecting our life. It is affecting our vitality. It is affecting who we are in Jesus Christ. So this matter of knowing your destiny is critical. And if it can be known, and if your destiny is good, then it is the greatest, most positive motivation that we can possibly have for living life. It can get us out of bed every day. It can get us through the day, every day, no matter what the day happens to face us with. And I just want you to know that when the Bible talks about your hope, this is what it's talking about. It is talking about your, your destiny. Your destiny. Not an uncertain good. Not a maybe. Not a hope so. But your destiny. You think about you know, in the world, in earthly terms, in human terms, we, we say, well, I hope that or I hope for. And I think the best I hope that that you or I could generate for ourselves, is always going to be an uncertain good. Because whatever I hope that or I hope for, it can't happen unless you know, I do my part and unless there are a whole lot of things outside my control that kind of cooperate or at least don't get in the way of what I hope for or hope that. Uh, human hope, it's like this. Here's an example. If you run like a champion, you can win this race. If you run like a champion, you can win this race. Well, that's a hope that can motivate. But at the same time, it motivates you. It can actually eat you up even as it drives you. Because this kind of hope carries with it the possibility of deep disappointment. It's conditional. It's iffy. And this is not the hope of the Bible when the Bible uses the word hope, it is in a much, much stronger way. So here's the counterpart. Here's what biblical hope sounds like. You will win this race. So run like it. You're going to win. So go for it. Now only God can give hope like this. Only He can say you're going to win. Only He can say you will win this race because only He is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. Only His will is sovereign, even sovereign over, as you think about it, even sovereign over your will and sovereign over my will and sovereign over my will in such a way that He can renew my will and keep me in the race. So when we think about biblical hope, this is what we, this is what we do. We, we trust in the Lord for that. We trust Him for it. We, we, we wait on the Lord for it. What was it that the Isaiah said? He said, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up 
on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow faint. Yes. Yes, indeed. And that is biblical hope. It grounds us and directs us to God and to trust in God from whom that hope is certain. One of my favorite Proverbs in the Bible is actually in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. I'm going to take it out of the context in which he quoted it, and that, because it also applies here. And this is, what the, this, is what the, uh, this is what it is. If the bugle produces an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? If the bugle blows an uncertain sound, who is going to prepare himself for battle? And I just want to say to you this morning that a bold, clear blast of the trumpet is exactly what the hope of salvation is in the Bible. It says to us, Christ's triumph is yours. Hold on to it. Go for it. Forget what lies behind. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. There is no disappointment in that. None whatsoever. Now, it's interesting that in our passage, it's clear that the Thessalonians, at least some of them, had some very deep reservations about their destiny. They were anxious. They were uncertain. Just as they've been uncertain about the destiny of their loved ones, which Paul addressed last week. And so, like Jesus' disciples, they're thinking this way. I want to know the day and the hour and the, you know, the minute and the second when Jesus is going to return so I can be sure to be prepared. So I won't be caught off guard. So I could just, you know, just make sure. And in verses 1 and 2, Paul gently chides his brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, you don't need me to tell you this. You already know this. I've already taught you this. You know this. And then, given the fear or the anxiety he had, it's almost as if he goes on to stoke their anxiety even more because he uses two metaphors to describe the day of the Lord, which are not unique to him. They, uh, the first one in particular is well-grounded in Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. But he uses these two metaphors, the thief of the night and a pregnant woman in labor. In verse 2, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will come, in other words, suddenly. It will be unexpected. People will be unprepared. He says that. Wasn't that exactly what the Thessalonians are concerned about? I won't be prepared. And then verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, he, he says, and while people are saying peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And I say not escape because in the Greek it's a double negative. It's like saying they will not not escape. They will not by any means escape. There is no route of escape possible. You cannot write a negative more emphatically than Paul writes it here. And so he's saying the day of the Lord also is unavoidable. It is also inescapable. And so as with the thief who breaks in at night, there is no warning. So as with the pregnant woman who suddenly goes into labor, there is no escape. Now, how can that, how can that not be terrifying? And that is terrifying. And I want to say that the worst thing that you and I could do would be to try and minimize 
the coming judgment that's coming on the world. It will mislead the world and it will substitute the hope that God gives with a filmy kind of flimsy alternative. And we do not want to do that for our own health and well-being and our witness. We do not want to do that. Here's the point. The question Paul makes clear isn't whether the day of the Lord will be uh, terrifying, whether it will come suddenly, whether it will come unexpectedly, whether it will be inescapable, whether or not it will be destruction. The question is not whether it is terrifying. It's clear from verse 12. It will be terrifying for those who are saying peace and security. You see, the question is, Who will it be terrifying for? Who will it be terrifying for? And in verse 12 he says, it makes it pretty clear, it will be terrifying for those who are saying peace and security. Now what does peace and security mean when you read that? Peace and security. You go back to the book of Jeremiah. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Jeremiah said this is what the folks are saying. Now you might want to take this phrase, peace and security, as a, I don't know, as a slogan in an election year. You might want to take it to mean or to describe a feeling of safety due to worldwide prosperity. But I don't think that's what's in mind here. Um, and it was not, I don't believe at all, what was in mind when Jeremiah said something originally. It was very similar. I think this is derived from that. I think that what peace and security is referring to is the world's public defiance of God. The world's defiance of God and his law, the defiance of God's son. You read about that in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take counsel together. Let's crush him. As Peter predicts, as the time of Jesus' coming draws near, people will be scoffing. Where is the promise of his coming? You see? Peace and security. There's no problem. All the while knowing, even in scoffing, all the while knowing, Paul tells us that those who practice what the world practices and approve of what the world is practicing know in their hearts that they deserve to die. So it comes down to this. That as the world ridicules the coming of Christ, as the world ridicules the coming of judgment, it denies at the same time the evidence that is everywhere of the necessity for judgment. Of the necessity for judgment. And so it will come unexpectedly, and it will come inescapably. But in verse 4, if you look with me, Paul begins that verse by saying, but you, but you, He says to these Thessalonians, but you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. For you are all, all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night and of the darkness. So you hear this. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's this threefold emphatic repetition of a single truth. Twice in the negative, once in the positive. He says, you are not in darkness, negative. You are all children of light, children of the day, positive. 
We are not of the night or of the darkness in naked. But talk about emphatic. The day of the Lord will come and be known as the deepest darkness on those who are in the darkness. It will be known as the day of the most brilliant brightness for those who have come to the light. And that's why as you go through Scripture and you read passages about the day of the Lord, some of those passages describe the day of the Lord in terms of great light and glory and brightness. Other passages describe the day of the Lord as, as deep darkness, like, like Amos did in the fourth chapter of his prophecy. And the point you see, I hope you understand, is whether you will experience the darkness or whether you experience the light and the joy of it. Depends on whether you are of the darkness or whether you are of the light. This world and everything that's a part of this world in its fallenness, sinfulness, death, it's all passing away. And those who are of it will pass away. There is a judgment coming. There will be a perishing. So Paul says, so Paul says, but you. You've been waiting for the Savior. Malachi wrote this way at the very end of the Old Testament. What a brilliant prophecy. Talking about the coming of the Lord is light. He said, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And Paul confirms this in Romans 8 when he goes on to say, Paul says, the whole creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And Paul here says then, but you are all children of the light. I mean, honestly, you've got to think about this. Jesus is coming in his glory. Why? He is coming in his glory in order to bring to pass the resurrection, the rapture, and the reunion of believers. And then the restoration of all things through those believers in whom he manifests manifests his glory. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, He is all the reason you need to live with an unwavering confidence in this hope. Without anxiety, without uncertainty, without fear, but really filled with faith and hope and love. And to be filled with faith and filled with hope and filled with love means that there is no room left for unbelief or doubt or for uh, a despair or, or hopelessness or for a kind of withdrawn and sort of self-serving um, condition of anxiety. It's just not. Paul writes about these, doesn't he, in our passage. This is the first or the earliest book of the New Testament where Paul talks about the armor of God. He develops this theme more, of course, later in Ephesians. But he writes about these in our passage. He writes about faith, hope, and love when he next says, Put on the breastplate of faith and love and, a helmet of the, uh, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. In other words, he's saying, Look, don't stand off to the side, Christian. Take the field with all of the strength and the enablement. And that's what that word armor symbolizes. All of the strength and enablement that God in His grace provides. Faith, hope, and love. 
These are not only the three grand Christian virtues. These are the three spiritual strengths that the Holy Spirit endows in those who name the name of Christ. These are endowments and gifts that God gives to his beloved, to his adopted, to his own faith and hope and love. So we put this on like armor to fight the good fight. And we are assured we will not be disappointed. Do not, do not live as if the, the outcome is in doubt. For you, for you. As if your destiny hangs in the balance. It does not. It does not. You say, well, wait a minute, how can this really be? And it's as if needing to know more, Paul adds, and this is like bringing out, you know, Big Bertha, you know, the big guy. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Let me just say, you heard, me, you heard me quote this, so that we might live together with him. Now, you won't find that in your ESV translation, but it is in the Greek. And when it says together, so we might live together with him, it's saying so that we together might live with him. This is the picture. We together might live with him. We know this is a concern. Now, some of you look around, look around yourselves and say, I'm going to spend eternity with, with him, with her. <laughs> okay, get over it. Because we're going to live together with him forever. That's what Paul is saying. And it's that simple. And it's, that, it's just that beautiful. You know, we can have all kinds of theological words and all kinds of concepts describe eternal life. Um, and, and I don't want to strip those away from us because I think we impoverish ourselves when we, um, when we don't take to heart all that God has said about this. But this is the irreducible core. You've been destined to live together with all believers through all of time. You're destined to live with Christ together. Destined. Destined. That's the verb that's used in Acts 1-7 where we read that God has fixed, that's the way it's translated, fixed the time of Jesus' return. You know, the year, the month, the day, the hour, the minute, the second. Jesus has fixed, the, God has fixed the time of Jesus' return by his own authority. This is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 12:18. It says God has arranged or fixed the members in the body of Christ, each one of them as he chose. You see how concrete and specific and individual This word is used, how individually it's used and applied. So this term now being translated destined, this term used of God fixing destinies is specific to the individual. It's specific to you. God has not destined you for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And it's true that if this word destined speaks of our of our salvation from God's frame of reference. The next verb he uses, obtain, to obtain, speaks of our salvation from our frame of reference. Paul says, God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And to obtain means to possess or experience something completely and fully. 
you all know, um, you, you know the word periscope. You know, a periscope on a submarine, right? Scope means to see. That's a Greek word. To scope something out. Just like in Greek. Peri means around. And a periscope enables you to see all the way around, right? Or you know the word perimeter, perimeter, perimeter. It means that it's everything that is around an area. The whole area, the whole thing enclosed, encompassed. Well, that little preposition, peri, P-E-R-I, is part of this verb that's translated obtain. It means we have the whole thing. Not part of it. Everything God has for us in salvation. He has for you. You are destined for salvation. Reminds me of Peter when he says in 1 Peter that, that our salvation is kept for us. It is preserved for us. Intact in its entirety. In its perfection. In its incorruptibility. In its eternity. Eternality. It's kept for us. It's being kept for us in heaven. For us. In heaven. Because God has destined you for that. Well, this is all pretty wonderful, I think. So here's how to remember it. Here's a way to think about it. Because I bet you, you have days that you get up. Well, you have days when you don't want to get out of bed. And, uh, you know, like... (laughs) It doesn't look like a very good day, and it doesn't feel like tomorrow can possibly be very good tomorrow. How can God be in control of all things when the stuff that I'm facing in my life is what I'm facing? Or when this turmoil I feel in my gut is what I'm, is what I'm feeling? These are the days when we especially need to recall this. So how can we do it? And let me suggest this to you. Your destiny is entirely due to Christ and not you. Entirely due to Christ. It comes through him, as Paul said. So think of it this way. That every time God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of his son who died so that we might live together with him forever. Every time God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of Christ who died for you by God's will so that you can live with him forever. Every time he looks at you. So you can just picture this, you know, God, right, you, little here, big lens. Every time he looks at you, he looks at you through Christ. Every single time. He doesn't look around his son to see you and to treat you as you or I deserve or as you and I fear We should be treated. He looks at you not through your fears at all. He looks at you through Christ. Through Christ. To love us and accept us. Just as he loves and accepts his son, he looks at you through Christ. He sees his son. And you say, well, I know, I'm not sure about that. How can it possibly be like that? I can't, it isn't about you or whether you deserve it. This is how God honors Jesus and his sacrifice for you, for your sin. It's how he honors his son's sacrifice. And in the same way, every time you think about God, every time you look at God, You look at him. You look to him 
through the lens of his son also. Look to him through Christ. Look to him through his son whom he sent to die for you so you obtain salvation. Don't look around Christ at God. His holiness will undo you. The impartiality of his justice will terrify you. You'll be giving Satan exactly the inroad he needs to have in your life to accuse you and to condemn you. When you think of God, you look at him through Christ. God has placed Christ between himself and us, not to create distance, of course, to close the gap, you see, to close the gap, to unite us to him, to draw us to himself. Jesus is great. And exalted always in God's sight. In that sense, Jesus fills his Father's field of vision. The Son is always before him. Always. So don't fear your end. But love Christ. Don't doubt your end. But trust Christ. Hold on to your hope. The Bible calls the hope of salvation the anchor for the soul. How could it possibly be the anchor for your soul? Because it is not of yourself. It comes from God. It is the anchor for your soul. And that anchor is in heaven itself. You follow that chain and you get to the anchor and the whole realization of what the hope is and you are with God forever. That's exactly what that hope will bring you. That's exactly what your hope is. So Paul concludes, brothers and sisters in Christ, encourage each other. Encourage each other. Support each other with these words. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Jesus. And we ask you to be teaching us and growing us and maturing us in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We ask you to have your, your way with us. That's what we, we want. We want your breath in us, filling us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.